Well, good morning. Um, did I tell you what text I was going to be teaching on this morning? I don't think so, did I? Okay. The Lord is good in how he works things out. And every single song that we uh, just finished singing directly applies to the text we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, would you bow with me in prayer before we open God's word? Heavenly Father, we recognize that your word is the authority in our lives. We recognize that you are our authority in our lives. So Lord, help us to bow our knees before your word. Help us to bow our hearts before your word. Uh, Lord, we seek not to apply your word to our lives, but we seek to apply our lives to your word. So help us with that. Lord, help us to walk out of here today different than the way that we came in, different because we've looked at your word, different because we have studied your word. Lord, help us to apply your word Help us to apply our lives to your word. Lord, we need your grace to do that. Lord, it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come easy for us. But Lord, we want to be more like your son, so help us with that. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we are absolutely thrilled to be here uh, with you this week. We've had a great time. Your hospitality is overwhelming, and, uh, and we have greatly enjoyed getting to know you and spending time. We've had some great weather the last couple days, um, and so... So just thank you, first and foremost, for just being yourselves in these days and, and allowing us to get to know you. Um, open your Bibles with me to John chapter 11. Let's talk miracles for a little bit. Miracles, by very, the very nature of what they are, um, are things that are supernatural, right? A miracle is something that is supernatural that can't be explained by regular laws of science. The regular rules of life do not apply, right? A miracle isn't that you found that close parking spot at the mall. That's not a miracle. We say it in just, oh, what a miracle, I found a spot. Um, and I'll be honest, I have prayed for parking spots before at a busy place, especially when we were in Italy, and we would drive around and around. For those of you who don't know, I was a missionary in Italy uh, for 11 years, and parking is hard in Italy, and there are times I would have been driving around for about 20 minutes trying to find a spot. Your sanctification is tested in those moments, because you sit there and think, Lord, I know you're in control. You could open a spot at any moment, but you haven't. Um, and then you finally find the spot, and you go, oh, miracle of miracles. But that's not a miracle, because that, that can be explained by natural laws of science. Someone left the building, and you happen to be at the right place at the right time. That's not a miracle. A miracle is not getting on a road that's full of traffic, and then, and there just doesn't happen to be traffic that day, and you make it in 15 minutes instead of the 35 that you're expecting. That's not a miracle. There could be a wreck farther down the road, and it's just blocked traffic, so you got on at the right spot, right? Th there are things that we call miracles that aren't miracles, but by very definition, a miracle is something that's supernatural, that's explicable, using normal rules of nature and science. And Jesus did miracles. And listen, a miracle is a miracle is a miracle. They're all miracles. One miracle, however, stands out above the rest, and we just celebrated it last week. There's one miracle that goes beyond the rest of the miracles, and that was Jesus coming back from the dead. But there's in, in some ways, it's hard for us to relate to that personally. That Jesus did other things too. Jesus walked on water. I, I can't do that. I've tried, and I try every summer when we go to the pool, and I stand at the edge of the pool, and I think today's the day, and I take my towel off, and I, obviously I'm joking, because I know it will never be the day, and I step away from the side of the pool, and for a split nanosecond, if you could pause time, I would feel like I'm walking on water, but the reality is I'm plunging to the depths of the deep end uh, because I can't walk on water. Jesus did. I can't do that. Peter did. I would have loved to have seen that, but Jesus walked on water. Jesus healed a blind man, and, and I've never been able to heal blind men. I've never tried because I can't do miracles, right? Jesus made bread out of nothing, ex nihilo. He created bread and fed a crowd upwards of 20,000. Just the men were numbered. So we know it's the feeding of the 5,000, but some theologians think it was up to 25,000 people were there. I think that might be a high number. 
18,000, 20,000 might be more accurate. However it is, it was more than five loaves and two, f- two fish, right? That was a miracle. So when I think about miracles and I think about the things that Jesus did, it's Jesus. Sometimes we go, well, that was Jesus. So Jesus rose from the grave, and it's a miracle, but it's hard to relate to that because I can't walk on water, I can't make bread, I can't heal a paralytic, a man who's, who has been lame since birth, I can't look at him and say, take up your mat and walk. But Jesus could. But there's one miracle that's my favorite, because I can relate to it. In kind of a weird way, we can all relate to it. And it's Lazarus. It's raising Lazarus from the dead. Because one day I will be like Lazarus. One day I will be in the tomb. One day... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get to that in a moment. You're with me in John chapter 11. Let's, what I want to do is look at this really in just three scenes. Three scenes, verses 1 to 16 is Jesus' surprising non-response. Jesus' surprising non-response. That's the first one we're going to look at. So let's start. John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Let's stop there for a moment and just recap what's happened so far. There's a, a man, Lazarus. We don't know much about him except what we read really in, verse, in chapters 11 and 12. Uh, but we do know because it's repeated, it's reiterated, it's, it's highlighted by John Force that Jesus loved him. And Jesus loved Mary and Jesus loved Martha. And, and we, we know Mary and Martha from other stories, but we don't know much about Lazarus. What we know is that Jesus loved the family, right? You see that in in verse 3. Lord, uh, behold, he whom you love is sick. And then you see it again in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He had a, a connection with them. And we see that he's sick. And I don't think this is a common cold kind of sick uh, because they, they dispatch a messenger to find Jesus. And theologians think that Jesus was in a, in a place that was about 100 to 130 miles away in a place called Bethnea, so it would have taken a four days to travel to get to Jesus. So this messenger comes to Jesus, and because it's four days away, again, this isn't just informative. They're not just telling Jesus, by the way, Lazarus is ill, but this is desperation. Go to Jesus. Go find Jesus and tell him Lazarus is sick. Why would they do that? Think through that. Why would they go tell Jesus that Lazarus is sick? Why do you tell Jesus when your loved one is sick? Why do you pray about it? Why do you go to to him for it? They would have gone because they know what Jesus is capable of doing, right? They would have gone to Jesus because they've heard that he heals the sick. In fact, in Luke, I I think it's Luke, maybe it's Mark actually, it, it specifically says, and they were bringing sick out to him in pallets and carrying them out to him, and Jesus is healing the sick. So they know what Jesus can do, and and word has spread about what Jesus can do. In fact, earlier in John chapter 4, I think it is, yeah, chapter 4, verse 46 to 54, uh, a man comes from a different city, a nobleman comes from a, a completely different city, and he finds Jesus, and he asks Jesus to come back with him, but rather than go back with him, do you remember what Jesus does? He says, your son is well. Jesus heals him from afar. So here we are in John 11. They've sent word to Jesus. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Why is that? They want him well. It's what we do when a loved one is sick. We pray for them. Lord, we go to our knees, Lord, I pray for so-and-so who isn't well, please make them well, right? That's our prayer, that's our desire, that's our hope, and, and that's what Scripture calls us to do. So they send a messenger out to Jesus. But when he heard this, verse 4, 
He said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, you and I know, because we've read this before, we know where it's going. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Put yourself in the messenger's shoes. He's traveled for four days to get to you. The sickness does not end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Uh, kind of a confusing saying. Maybe the disciples would have thought, oh, well, I guess he's going to be okay. All right, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. That's what they're convinced of. Um, but verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There's full expectation that Jesus will up and go. There's full expectation that Jesus will heal their brother Lazarus. There's full hope as they cry out through a messenger, as they pray to God like you and I have, that someone will be made well. And have you ever prayed? I'm sure you have for someone's health. Has it ever happened that the person didn't get well? That's hard sometimes, isn't it? But I prayed but I asked, but I called out, but I cried out, Lord. Where were you? Weren't you listening? Now, don't read. Let me read the next verse. Now, when he heard that he was sick, comma, what do you expect that to say? Now, when he heard that he was sick, I think we all expect it to say he got up and left. When he heard that he was sick, he healed him from afar. When he heard that he was sick, Jesus was moved to action. Look what it says. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus does nothing. It's kind of heavy, isn't it? Doesn't that seem awkward? It seems backward. It seems contrary to what we would expect it to say. When Jesus heard that he was sick, Jesus took off. Instead, in God's timing, he did nothing. Put yourself in the, in the shoes of the, of the messenger, in the shoes of the disciples. There's the sandals of the disciples. What an odd response from Jesus, Jesus who is constantly healed. Jesus who has gone out of his way to help people in other cities. Jesus does nothing. And sometimes, do you feel the tension in that text? Sometimes that tension's in our heart too, isn't it? When we pray for something, when we ask for something, when we think something needs to be done in a certain way, and we say, Lord Jesus, heal, or Lord Jesus, change, or Lord Jesus, do something, and nothing happens, we feel frustrated. I'm sure Mary and Martha felt, felt frustrated. I mean, look what he says in the next verse. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. This is two days have passed, right? So think of the timing of it. It took four days, roughly four days, because you would travel about 25 to 30 miles a day to get to Jesus. Finally, that messenger gets there, and Jesus does nothing for two more days. And then after that, he says, let's go. Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? If we were to flip back to the end of chapter 10 and look through that, the, the religious leaders were trying to stone Jesus. They wanted to capture him and stone him. That would be the equivalent of capital punishment. Surround the person, pick up stones and stone the person. They sought to stone Jesus. And the the disciples are saying, Jesus, I don't think it's a good idea that we go back there again. In the, and then they had just heard Jesus say, well, the sickness doesn't end in death, so why are we going? They're going to try to kill you. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? And if anyone who walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. It's an odd saying, but what Jesus is saying is this. We're walking in the day. This isn't their time. It's not the time to capture me. It's not the time to stone me. They didn't quite understand it, but that's what he's getting at. Verse 10, but if anyone walks, uh, sorry, verse 11, this he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, He'll recover, right? They're still thinking, Jesus, they want to kill you. And if he's only asleep, let it go. He's going to wake up. 
right? Jesus is talking to them in ways that they're not getting just yet. So Jesus said to them plainly, I'm sorry, verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. How would Jesus know this? He's omniscient. This is twice now, actually, in this text, Jesus has displayed his omniscience, right? Back up in verse 4, Jesus says the sickness will not end in death. He's displaying what he knows will happen. And here he says, now from afar, two days later, Lazarus has died. He's displaying, he's putting on display the fact that he's God. Lazarus is dead. Verse 15 And I am glad for your sakes that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. What an odd saying as well. Again, I think this text goes against everything that we would expect Jesus to do. Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there. And we would say, wait, you're glad that you weren't at the hospital? In the moment of his death, you're glad that you weren't at his side? We think differently than the way Jesus is thinking. Jesus is thinking on a spiritual plane, and we think on the physical plane all too often. Jesus is saying, I'm glad for your sakes because you're going to see something that's absolutely amazing, and I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. But I'm sure they were thinking, this is not going the way we would have expected it. This is not happening the way that we would think it would happen. So there's, I think, there's a lot of tension in this text. I think the disciples would have been confused, putting myself in their shoes. I think they would have been going, I don't get what Jesus is doing. He could have saved from afar, but he didn't. I mean, we've seen him walk on water, heal a paralytic, and spit in the mud and wipe it on someone's eyes. We've seen him do all of that, and here he seems to lack compassion. He doesn't. But isn't it true sometimes we feel one way, but the reality is another? We are like the disciples. Friends, you and I would have been right there with the disciples going, Jesus, what are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? But they go. Therefore, Thomas, I love this, verse 16. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, which means the twin. So that must have been his nickname, the twin. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go so that we may die with him. They're still thinking, Jesus, they're going to kill you. But Let's go, one last, one last, win one for the Gipper, right? Let's go together, and Jesus dies, we die with him. Let's go down. They're still not getting it. And how often do you and I still not get it? We're just like them. So that's the first scene. The scene is Jesus from afar. The scene is Jesus, Jesus' is surprising non-response. Jesus' is surprising non-commitment we would say not getting involved not doing what we expect him to do how are you with that does that happen with you does that happen where you expect jesus to do something you expect god to intervene in a certain way and yet it doesn't sometimes sometimes god's will is different from our will and and we struggle with that Because let's be honest, sometimes we think we know best, right? We know what's going on in this situation, and we think that God should act according to the way that we think. And when it doesn't happen that way, it rubs us raw a little bit. And we might get a little bit jaded towards God. Maybe it's a conflict with a friend. Maybe it's a difficulty. Maybe Maybe it's a job application. Maybe whatever it is, Lord, this was perfect for me. Why didn't you give it to me? Instead of saying, Lord, thank you that your will be done, and wow, I thought this was good for me, but it must not have been. We tend to mix that up a little bit. And that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. So this is Jesus' surprising non-response. I think it would have been strange. I think it would have been awkward. I wonder if the disciples were in the back going, did you you hear what? Wait, why didn't Jesus do something, and now we're going to go? They travel for four days. Let's look at Jesus' shocking declaration. Jesus' shocking declaration. This is the second scene in this text, and it runs us from verse 17 through uh, verse 37. Jesus' shocking declaration. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Lazarus had been dead and buried for four days. This is the four days of the trip. 
Remember, the messenger is dispatched. Jesus, the friend love, is sick. Jesus does nothing for two days, and in those two days, he dies. Now, even if Jesus had left, it's a four-day trip. He would have still died, but Jesus could have healed him from afar. But he gets there. He gets there. When Jesus came, he found that he had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. I think this is what they would have expected Jesus to come do. If Jesus hadn't arrived in in time, but yet had still arrived, it would have been a consoling time. And and yet other people were there. We're going to hear Mary and Martha's response, and it's very similar to if you had been here. Others came, and others consoled, and others helped, but Jesus, you weren't there. Look, let's read on. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think there's two ways to read that. I think it could, be, could come across as, a, as accusative. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I think there, you could read it like a pointing finger, and I don't think that's how it came across. I think it was Martha recognizing that Jesus could have done something. I don't think she's blaming. I think she's saying, Lord, if you had been here, I know what you could have done. I know what you are capable of. And, I, and that's really, you've got to put capable of in parentheses because She has no idea what Jesus is capable of. She has no idea what's about to come. She knows what he's done, but she doesn't know what he can do in the life of someone. She's grieving. She's hurting. And and we're going to see the exact same thing Mary says a little bit later. Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, I know what you could have done. Even now, verse 22, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She recognizes Jesus for who he is, but doesn't know what he truly is. Jesus answered. Jesus said to her, verse 23, your brother will rise again. But Martha said to him, I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And and I think it's Charles Spurgeon, if I'm not mistaken. He said, a telescope is designed to bring the far off near when you look at the right end. Right? When you look at the right end of a telescope, the correct end of the telescope, that which is far away, those who are in the back, you would be brought near. Right? I could see you up close if I looked through the correct end of the telescope. And, and Jesus' promise here is meant to be a reassuring promise. But all too often, we, like Martha, friends, we're like the disciples, we're like Mary and Martha. All too often, we look at the wrong end of the telescope, and we see that which is far off is really far off. The resurrection on the last day should be something that brings you joy today. And you should live a changed life because you know that in the end, the resurrection will happen. That should be what Martha is saying. But instead, she's like, well, I know, but it's the last day. I'm going to not see him until then. Jesus' words, though, are a promise. He will rise. He's thinking present tense. He's thinking right now. He's thinking, give me 10 minutes, Martha. She doesn't know that. We are like Martha. We look at the wrong end of the telescope. We look at what is far off and we get depressed about it rather than get excited about it. We look and say, well, one day, one day I'll see him again rather than I will see him again one day. You see the difference in that? So look what he says. Um, your brother will rise again. She says, I know, verse 25. Jesus said to her, here's, here's, the, here's the mic drop. Here's the, the major moment. This is the confession that Jesus makes that blows us out of the water. This is the, the fifth I am in the gospel of John. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And anyone or everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I I think that's an amazing statement. But I think we go, what does that mean? It's amazing, 
But what does that really mean when Jesus says to her, your brother's dead right now, but I am the resurrection. I am the life, and I'm standing in front of you. Listen, keep your, keep your thumb here. Flip back to John 1, to the very beginning of this book. What does Jesus mean when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life? Let's think about the word resurrection while you're flipping. Resurrection is to, to cause to rise again, to cause to happen again. Jesus says, I am the one who causes life again. I'm the, the rebringer, if we could say it like that, of life. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him, and it's talking about Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus gave life to everything. Genesis 1, God spoke it. Colossians says Jesus was the agent who did it. So when God said, let there be light, it's Jesus who created the light, the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead, was the giver of all life in the beginning. Flip back, if you will, to Genesis chapter 1. Sorry, Genesis chapter 2. Let's go there. Here we get the creation of Adam. We're zooming in on on the creation of Adam. Look with me at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Think about that for a moment. If God commanded the creation and Jesus is the one or the second person of the Trinity is the one who actually does the act of creation. The breathing of life came from Jesus. That life was Jesus' work. John 1.1, 1, 1, everything that came into being came into being, into being because of Jesus. And now he's standing in front of Martha. Let's go back to John 11. He's standing in front of Martha, and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha's thinking long distance. Yeah, my my brother will rise again in the last day. Jesus is thinking, Martha, I'm the giver of life. And she's not getting it, and you and I would not have gotten it either. It would have gone, because it went over everyone's head. It went over everyone's head. And I think that's kind of what makes it exciting. When God does the unexpected, let me back up. If God only does the expected, does God blow you away? If you could totally understand everything about God, would you be excited about God? If God, if you were fully capable in your finite mind to understand an infinite God and what he's capable of, you'd be bored with God. Because that means you are actually greater than God, if you can just understand everything about him. I love what David says in Psalms 145, you're unsearchable. We dig in, and we search, and we try, and we get excited about who God is, but in the end, he is unsearchable. He is beyond our understanding. And I think that's a great thing. Again, if you could understand everything about God, he wouldn't be God. You would be, if you could fully get everything. And Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And she doesn't get it. We wouldn't have gotten it. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, notice he says that twice, friends. And I don't know if you're here as a believer in Christ or not. But the hope that he gives and the promise that he gives is not for everyone. Catch that. He who in me and that's not just like yeah i think god exists yeah he's out there we're talking about believing who he is and and agreeing with god that you're a sinner and that he died for your sins and that you need to be saved that's that's believing in god not just i know that god's there but i believe jesus says twice to martha i'm the resurrection and the life he who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me, will never die. Do you believe this? 
she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the, the Messiah, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So she, she believes like we do in her finite understanding, and she's about to have her finite understanding explode of what Jesus is, from what Jesus is about to do. When she had said this, verse 28, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, that's Mary, Mary got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and were consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came, uh, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him the same thing Martha said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Uh, put yourself for a little bit in their shoes for the past four days. For the past four days. We've sent word to Jesus. Is he coming? Is he coming? Is he going to make Lazarus well? Oh, Jesus is going to come. Jesus loves Lazarus. Two days goes by. Lazarus dies. If only Jesus had been here. They're both repeating the same thing. They've talked about it. They've wept over it. They've cried. Oh, if only Jesus could have been here. If Jesus could have done what we thought best. We've wept. We've cried. We would be there with them. Verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping also, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And I love verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus didn't weep because Lazarus is dead. Jesus knows that Lazarus is about to live again. Jesus didn't weep because, because of death. Jesus wept because death is the result of Adam and Adam's fall in the garden. This death is the very end result of sin coming into the world. And he's watching Mary and he's watching Martha and he's watching the friends grieve because that's what we do. Death separates. Death causes division that we can't overcome. Death separated Mary and Martha from their brother and the friends were there weeping and, and this is the result of sin, right? Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. This is the result. Jesus came in the world to wrong this, sorry, to right this wrong. I almost said that theologically backwards there. Jesus came to fix it. And he's seeing the very result of the thing that he came to die for is being played out in his dear friends, and they're grieving the loss of someone. He's not weeping because of Lazarus. He knows what's coming in just a few moments. He's grieving because he sees the result. He's witnessing the result of sin in the lives of people. Sin is costy. Sin is gross. Sin is ugly. Sin in the Old Testament would cause you to bring would to bring an animal to the temple and the priest would give you a knife and you would have to kill the animal after you've placed your hands on its head symbolizing your sin being passed to that animal there would have been blood all over the place it would have been a gross ugly smelly costy nasty thing but you would have walked away that day saying thank god for a substitute because that should be me and he sees right there the pain and suffering of how everything has gone right. And it's coming close to his time on the cross when he would make that payment. He would be the substitute that you and I look to and, and you and I say, thank God for a substitute because sin is gross. Your sin is costy. Your sin is smelly and ugly and it costs the death of the son. He grieves over sin. So the Jews were saying, oh, see how he loved him? They're not understanding. But some of them said, and notice how it starts, but some of them said. This is a, a trusting conjunction. Some of them are like, oh, look how much Jesus loved Lazarus. He's crying for Lazarus, which he wasn't. But some of them, so a contrast, they think he's crying for a different reason. Oh, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? 
Some of them kind of have that maybe accusative tone. If Jesus had been here, he could have done something. Jesus is shocking. Jesus is shocking declaration here. I am the resurrection and the life. And he's about to make good on that. No one expects it. Put yourself in their shoes, friends. Walk in their sandals. Uh, feel the dirt kick up from your feet as you're, as you're walking with heavy feet to the tomb. And, and the tomb back then would have, been, would have been a cave. There's a large stone in front of it. We'll see that in a second. He's been in there for four days. Feel the weight of the difficulty. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, wondering, I don't know what Jesus is doing. This isn't what we expected. This isn't what he usually does, right? This isn't how Jesus usually responds. Put yourself in the shoes of Mary and Martha. They're grieving. Their brother has been gone for four days now, and they know that Jesus could have done something. We know when we pray for someone that God could do something. We also know that God's timing, because we've learned from texts like this, God's timing is not our timing. Walk with me now to the last scene, Jesus' supernatural command of life. Jesus' supernatural command of life. This is verses 38 to 46. Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now, it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. So again, this is, their caves would have been um, either a, a natural cave or a, or a man-made cave. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea had a, a freshly hewn uh, cave that they laid Jesus in, so that was freshly hewn. Sometimes it was just a cave, and they would make kind of chambers or, or beds, and they would wrap people. They wouldn't embalm them like the, like the Egyptians, but they would wrap them up kind of I mean, my mind pictures mummy version, right? Looks like toilet paper all the way up, and they would have laid him down in there, and they would have put, they would have put very heavy and thick uh, spices to cover the smell because the body would start decomposing within four days, and it would smell really bad. So there they are. Remove the stone, verse 39, said Jesus. Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. They're all thinking that Jesus is there to, to mourn at the tombstone. Jesus is not there to mourn at the tombstone. Jesus is there to be the resurrection and the life. And he says, remove the tomb. And I love, I think it's the King James says, Lord, he stinketh. He stinketh by now. He's been in there for four days. And, and imagine the scene. There's the, the tomb in front with the stone covering it. There's Mary and Martha grieving and crying and weeping. There's a crowd who's been following. There are the 12 disciples standing there. Put yourself in one of their, you would have been there. Maybe, maybe you would have been with the disciples. Maybe you would have been with the crowd. Maybe you would have been a little cynical because of what's about to happen. Read with me. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and I'm sure stinketh came out, right? It would have smelled. Uh, natural rules apply up until this point, so it would have been stinky. It would have been smelly. People would have been covering their mouths, and I mean, that's like pre-COVID mask covering, right? Or face coverings. They would have been covering up, and, and Jesus is standing there, and in that tomb is what? It's death. It's darkness, and right now death is king. Death is reigning in that tomb. Death is reigning victorious, and the weight of sin is reigning as king. Outside, there's the grieving of sin is reigning, but the Lord of life is standing. Get ready for it. And I know you guys know this story, but live it with me as if for the first time. Verse 41, so they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. This is for your glory that I'm doing this, so that they may believe. When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. Now, if we could 
if we could pause the video right there, just pause time for a moment. Let the, let the camera scan to the crowd. Which person in the crowd would you be? Would you be the cynic that is standing there saying, oh, this is unbelievable. He can't do that. It's impossible. It is scientifically impossible to bring anyone back from the dead. It wasn't possible to walk on water, still trying to figure out how he did that. It's not possible to create bread. He probably brought some with him somehow to feed 20,000 people. Maybe you're there saying, I don't think so. Maybe you brought the gavel down in your own heart and in your own mind and said, impossible. Maybe you're the doubter. Can he do that? I know he, he walked on water. And he healed a blind man and the paralytic stood up. But this man is dead. Can he do that? Maybe you're with the disciples who are standing back going, what did he do? Is he going to, wait, can he do that? I, l- I would have loved to have been there. Maybe you're with the people saying, oh, how mean and cruel Jesus is. Can you believe what he's doing? He's making Mary and Martha suffer even more. What a mean, cruel joke. Who are you? Would, you would have been there, and I don't know who you would have been, but you would have been there. But Jesus was there, and he calls out to Lazarus, and I, and I think it was, again, I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said, you know why he said the name Lazarus? Because if he would have merely said, come forth, every dead person in that cave would have stood up. But he called out to one man and said, La-. he didn't, notice he didn't ask Lazarus' opinion. Lazarus, do you mind if I give you life? Is that okay with you if I save you right now, Lazarus? He called out to one man in that cave and said, come forth. And I don't know how long that pregnant pause would have been as they waited. As people looked at Jesus, back at the cave, back at Jesus, back at the cave. Until you heard shuffling of feet. Verse 44. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with cloth and Jesus said to them unbind him let him go I just imagine in my mind he's doing like this shuffle as he tries to come out because he's he's bound completely with wrappings and he's coming out of this cave he's obeying in that moment Jesus looked into the cave and he commanded death let go Jesus commanded death and said you're done Jesus breaks death this is just a preview of coming attractions right in just a couple weeks Jesus is going to rise from the grave himself and prove that he is the commander of life. He is the resurrection and the life. So this is just a preview. And Lazarus comes out. And I tell you, it would have been real hard to have Lazarus over for dinner anytime after that, right? You talk about your hard day. It's been a rough day, Lazarus. It's just been really hard. I don't know. Work was tough today. And Lazarus would say, well, did I ever tell you about the time I died? And Jesus got me back. And I don't know what Lazarus, I don't know where Lazarus was for four days. I don't know if he was walking the streets of heaven and he's loving it. And then all of a sudden he hears from a, a distant echo, Lazarus, come forth. And he's just like, no, as he goes back and, and he stands up. I don't know. Uh, the Jews are going to hate him for it. In the next chapter, it says they decide to kill him because he rose again. The poor guy. He gets the bad end of the deal every time, right? Jesus didn't come make him better, and then he died, and then Jesus rose, rose him again, and then they want to kill him again just because he rose. But friends, Jesus stood there, the resurrection and the life, and he looked into the darkness, and he looked to where death was reigning, and he said, let go. Lazarus, rise. I am the resurrection and the life. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. And they start conspiring once again to kill Jesus and even Lazarus. You can read about that later on in chapter 12. Um, They want to kill Lazarus. They want to put him to death. Friends, I think the reason why I love this miracle more than every other miracle is because I can relate to Lazarus. In two ways, spiritually and physically. Think about it with me. Spiritually, what does the Bible say about you before Christ enters your heart? 
Jesus or Paul says, and you were in Ephesians chapter 2, dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't kind of sick. You weren't sickly. You weren't drowning in an ocean and Jesus tossed you a lifesaver and said, hey, grab onto it. No, you were dead. If you were in that ocean, you're sinking. You're not alive. Spiritually, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. But Ephesians 2, 4, but God, right? But God, flip with me to, um, where do I want to go? Second Chronicle, second, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 4. I love what Paul says. Think about the connection here. Inside that tomb, inside that tomb, friends, was not light but darkness. Inside that tomb, there was darkness. When Jesus called in and said, come forth. Ephesians, sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 4. Let's look at verse, well, let's start with verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled or covered or somewhat hidden to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, talking about the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So people of this world without Christ are blinded, they're veiled. Verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Just like God said, let there be light on day one, and Christ created the light. Light obeyed instantly because God because the second person of the Trinity commanded it. In this case, Jesus looks into the darkness of the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. And, and darkness has to obey. And the light, which is the light of men, John 1, caused Lazarus to stand up. Spiritually, friends, we're dead. Spiritually, we're dead in our trespasses and sins until God intervenes and shines light into our hearts and we see our needs. So spiritually, I'm like Lazarus. Spiritually, you're like Lazarus until God intervenes. Physically, I relate to this because one day that will be me. One day that will be me. I will be lying there. I will be stinketh, right? One day I will be in the tomb. But I'm not going to stay there because Christ is the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in him lives though he dies. One day that will be me, and friends, one day that will be you. The difference is he who believes. And so as we apply this text, there are two ways that we should apply this text to our lives. If, if you're a Christian, it's one way, and if you're not, it's another way. So if you're a believer, if you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have agreed with him that you need to be saved, that on your own you're hopeless and helpless, that you are like Lazarus, and you said, forgive me because of what he did on that cross, when he was your substitute, this text calls for you to get excited. The promise is not far away. Don't look through the telescope backwards, but look through it the correct way. He is the resurrection and the life, and I will be with him forever. That brings you hope. That brings you excitement. That tells you I'm not afraid of dying because death only brings you closer to he who created you. Get excited. If that's you, if you're a Christian, this text should excite you. It's my favorite miracle because I'm like Lazarus and I will be one day in the grave, but I will not be in the grave because that day, that moment, I'm with my maker and creator for all eternity. So we grieve that we miss others, but we rejoice that they've been promoted to heaven. There's promise in that. There's hope in that. And that's why we preach the gospel to the lost, right? But if you're here today, and I don't know, because I don't know all of you, if you're here today and you haven't asked forgiveness for your sins, if you're here today and, and that's not you, you haven't gone to, the, gone to the foot of the cross and asked the Lord to save you, to adopt you, to bring you from the domain of darkness into the, to the kingdom of light, according to Corinthians or Colossians if that's not you this text has no hope for you 
And I pray that the weight of this text falls heavy on your heart. Because that will be you one day. But you won't have the hope of the resurrection and the life. So this text calls to you. It begs to you, ask forgiveness. This text to you says, repent. Because one day you will be in that grave, but you don't have the resurrection and the life on your side. You don't have the hope of life after death with Christ. Friend, repent. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you. We're grateful because you sent your son and he made this declaration that blows our minds away, a declaration that we can't fully understand even now. Not even the disciples fully understood it. We know from Matthew 28, after your own son came back, they met him on the mountain. Some of them doubted, it says. Some doubted. We would be like them. Lord, we're not puffed up enough to think that we know more than the disciples. But Lord, help us to get excited that your son is the resurrection and the life. He lived and he died for our sins so that we could spend all eternity with you. He reconciled us to you, paying the full penalty and canceling the debt that we had. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you. Lord, I pray that the weight of this text would be on their very hearts and on their very souls, that, Lord, they don't have that hope. They don't have that joy. They don't have that forward-looking thought that one day all things will be made right. They only have today. And I pray, Lord, that you would prick their hearts, that you would convict them, and that, Lord, they would take today to be a good day to ask you to save them. Lord, help us to apply this text. Help us to be excited about this text. Help us to relish and enjoy this text because the resurrection and the life has saved us. In your name we pray, amen.